Welcome to the Coffee Break Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andy Hirschfeld. We're coming on the air for the first time in what will go down as one of the single most consequential moments in American history. The outbreak of the coronavirus. This public health crisis is revising our politics, it's revising our finances, and it is revising what we stand for. On today's show, we will discuss how this public health crisis is going to change the American identity for decades to come. My guest is an expert on this, seasoned pandemic journalist Thor Benson. The coffee break starts right now. Thanks for uh, coming on the show in the midst of all this craziness going on with the coronavirus. Uh, first, I just kind of want to get your perspective more broadly on the U.S. response to the virus itself. Well, <laughs> it feels like we've kind of been hobbling along through this, uh, partially because of Trump's failures to lead. Um, and seeming disinterest in leading. Um, I think a lot of governors and mayors and you know other leaders throughout there have helped us get to a place where you know we're gonna get through this all right um, at some point. Uh, but I think we could have had a much more coordinated, thoughtful response to this, and we'd be in a much position better position than we are now. Can you give me some specifics, some examples of what you were what you're thinking? Um, I mean, we, we could be, we should be testing like a million people a day by now and we're not doing that. Um, we should have the president meeting with governors or, you know, social distance meeting <laughs> uh, with governors and, and coordinating a response rather than kind of saying you're on your own. Uh, I'm going to do my thing, you do yours. Um, we should also be coordinating with other governments, uh, figuring out what worked for them and how we can apply those lessons here. But have we really seen a response on the global level that has really made much sense, that has had some significant uh, action? It seems like a lot of, almost every government is having some kind of, of, of misstep. You've given some more than others. Uh, but, you know, we're looking at just about every government because it's taking some kind of misstep. We wouldn't see outbreaks like we're seeing in Italy if Italy was taking the appropriate steps. Yeah, it seems like uh, pretty much everyone started by failing. Uh, <laughs> China, and, uh, you know, Italy, all these other countries. Um, but then a lot of them corrected pretty quickly and, and did a good enough job, I'd say, to not all, some of them, like South Korea, uh, did a good enough job to recover more quickly than it looks like we're going to. Now, so from a culture standpoint, the the response from the virus uh, and the impact it's having on our politics, uh, our our culture, and uh, our our finances, really our economy, uh, is just it's it's it looks to me like this is going to be part of our culture and reshape how we really act uh, as a society moving forward uh, for decades. Can you kind of speak to that where you see as a you know, yourself, you're a seasoned uh, pandemic 
journalists, can you speak to what you're seeing there? What your what your view is on this? Um, yeah. um, unfortunately, I'm I'm a little pessimistic that we'll learn a lesson from this and suddenly like constantly be aware of a pandemic could be around the corner and we should be prepared for that. I think we'll do better. I, I find Americans, we tend to only be worried about emergencies when we're in one. Uh, in, in the, in the, like time in between, we kind of forget. Um, but I hope we'll improve there. And in terms of just a culture, I think, I mean, this is still going to keep us at home for a while longer. And I think people are kind of getting used to shopping online instead of going to stores and kind of getting used to working from home. And maybe bosses are getting more used to having employees who aren't standing right next to them. And I think, yeah, there will be some psychological changes there. Um, and I, I'm starting to see more companies automating. Um, that's going to affect us for some time if they, if they really ramp up their efforts. And I've seen a lot of companies kind of engaging in more surveillance tactics to keep control of their employees during this. Uh, that, could, that could last beyond the, the virus. What do you mean? in terms of the surveillance aspect what are, what are you seeing out there uh, there's like a lot of companies like installing software so that they can monitor their employees while they're working from home there's a lot of companies like um, amazon appears to be uh doing even more surveillance of their warehouse workers just make sure they're social distancing maybe even to try to figure out if they're getting sick but that's unclear um so i think maybe they're taking this as an opportunity to even more closely monitor the people that work for them. Now, uh, as you mentioned, um, you, this is, um, companies are really going to start moving into this remote working space. You're seeing that, you know, employers are, are would rather you know not have their people next to them as as you mentioned uh you and i we both work in journalism mm -hmm. uh that's a growing phenomenon in in the media industry it's becoming more and more prevalent um do you how is this going to translate over into other industries you see you know this is something that that journalists have been experiencing for years well yeah i've always found it silly that you would limit your talent base to like who lives around you or who is willing to move to where you are in the 21st century. I mean, <laughs> well, we, we can all zoom in. We can all some some jobs like in journalism, of course, require you to be on the ground if you're doing local reporting. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot more companies will start to realize that it has been silly that we haven't utilized modern technology more to to get talent that maybe doesn't want to move to where you are or just isn't where you are or whatever. And is, is that, so you see that as a plus? Yeah. Is there any negative aspects to that though? Like are you? Uh, there are social and psychological negatives maybe. Um, a lot of people thrive on, you know, workplace culture, getting to know their coworkers and their bosses in a one-on-one -on -one kind of way. Um, so yeah, there could be a kind of further isolating effect uh, on that. Do you 
see there being a, a bigger rise in self-employment and things like that, uh, that all these small businesses are kind of either shrinking or closing up shop. Um, I mean, we're going to be looking at more of an expansion of, of bigger businesses uh, that, and, and less or so in medium and small, yeah. small businesses. Well, yeah, we're seeing Amazon is just doing tons of orders right now as small businesses are wording if they're going to go bankrupt. Um, so mm -hmm. that's just further expanding their reach. Um, and I, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of people learning new ways to make money that they didn't try out before. So I don't know, maybe there'll be more gig workers who are, who have decided, well, like I was, you know, laid off or I couldn't work for a while and, uh, I started this new thing and now this is my new job, you know. Have you seen, spoken to any people that, that exemplify that? Um, no one specific comes to mind. I've just been seeing people pick up more and more like trades and hobbies and stuff like that. What, what's one that's really caught your eye? Um, I've been seeing people getting into woodworking, which has made me want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> what, so like, what, what is your, what, what's, uh, what's interesting about woodworking to you? Uh, I don't know. We, we do so much on the computers these days that I think, uh, it's nice to do stuff with your hands sometimes. Uh, maybe we'll see a renaissance of skilled tradesmen again. <laughs> what, uh, have you uh, have you done any kind of woodworking in the past, or is that just like, oh my god, this looks so cool, I want to give it a try? Or I did a little bit when I was young, uh, but I can't say I've done much since then. The only like working with my hands things I've done in the last like decade was uh, working on bikes. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, you live in um, New Orleans, correct? Yes. How is it on the ground there right now? I know you guys are kind of a hot spot. Yeah, I think we're a hotspot, but I feel like we get more attention than other places that are also hotspots right now. Like, like things don't look so great in Michigan right now. Or in Florida, I think is on the upswing. Um, because I think New Orleans has just kind of become known as a place where disasters happen. <laughs> um, but in terms of on the ground, uh, things were not in terms of like, people being responsible until we did the, social, the shelter in place. Um, now, I don't see crowds of people anymore. Uh, I see a lot of masks, like lots of people just like walking down the street in masks. Um, people seem to do the social distancing. Um, yeah, it seems better. I think the sheltering in place is gonna help us go from what would have been like a huge hotspot to just like another one of the hotspots, you know, around the country. Yeah. So you, so this, so the city and the state has been has has moved in a fairly positive way in, in terms of uh, the the response to coronavirus in Louisiana. I think so. I think uh, our governor, who's a Democrat, everyone remembers him beating Trump's guy in November. Uh, he doesn't feel the need to be a stooge for Trump. He he just wants to, you know, take care of the people here. Uh, unlike you know, like Ron DeSantis in Florida, who like has to be locked in lockstep with Trump and waited way too long to shelter in place and has a really at-risk population and a population that was refusing to stop doing what they want to do. 
Um, so I think there's going to be some negative consequences in Florida. What do you see uh, moving moving forward in Louisiana? Do you see how how long uh, are you seeing this play out there? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I think yeah, we're, I'm sure New Orleans is going to stay and do, doing the sheltering in place thing for. I mean, I don't know, at least a few more weeks. I can imagine longer. Um, yeah probably quite a bit longer. Um, in terms of the state, I don't know. Uh, the governor and the mayor have kind of been, it seems, coordinating and just taking it day by day. So I don't think they really know what the plan is. So uh, you've covered pandemics for a while, mm -hmm. uh, public health problems. Uh, would you say that there is something historically that we could compare this to, and what would that be? Well, in terms of I think response. It, uh, in terms of uh, failed year to respond. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, oh, there's uh, a response. Whether it's the whether whether it's a great response or it's a terrible response, there's a, there's yeah. a response here. Uh, uh, well, someone said the other day, uh, and this is not related to pandemics, but they were talking about how Trump failed so hard when it came to responding to um, the Hurricane Maria hitting Puerto Rico and how like the deaths numbers were way off. And they're saying, well, now we're seeing it, you know, happen on the mainland. Um, so I thought that was an interesting way of putting it into perspective. And I used to live in Puerto Rico, so I appreciate the people are still talking about it. Um, a lot of people have been comparing this to the Spanish flu in 1918, which I've written about. Um, that one, it's hard to say if it had a higher mortality rate because it was just more lethal or if it was because we just didn't really understand viruses back then and didn't have vaccines and you know things like this. Um, I feel happy that I'm seeing a lot of people in like the innovation area uh, working really hard uh, to help us track this, help us work on therapeutics, you know, the treatments that can make it so it's less deadly. Um, the World Health Organization just said that uh, vaccine development is going much faster than expected, so that's good news. Um, so I think we, we have technology on our side compared to more than ever compared to any past pandemic, so that's positive. Yeah, that is definitely a, definitely a positive uh, move uh, in terms of how, how we can deal deal with this. Uh, in terms of some of these innovative moves, how, how fast do you see this happening? Um, any examples of how 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 quickly we can really get life back to normal? Uh, right. Is there any indication of when that could be? Uh, or what we're looking at to at least at, at some level uh, get back to to normal. It's so hard to say. Um, I I personally think this. I don't want to like put a specific date on it because that would be silly. But I think this thing could peak in the United States by the end of the month, or it could be shortly after that. Because I think we have many more cases than we're aware of because we weren't testing enough. We could have triple, quadruple what we think we have. Uh, which would Absolutely. Mean, yeah. I mean, 
I just had the coronavirus myself. Oh, really? Um, and yeah. And the thing is, healthcare professionals are saying, unless you're like really, really sick, don't go to the hospital. So you have all these people who have who have mild cases, uh, yeah. who are who likely have mild cases, who are not actually going to the hospital because they're not sick enough to be there. And so inherently, or they have no symptoms home, at all. Exactly. So if if you're, you know, if you have people who are not symptomatic or people who are dealing with mild or more mm-hmm. moderate symptoms they're not getting tested because they're not actually going to the hospital. So the number, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is more of an educated guess from, uh, you know, also based on personal experience, but you know, it's, it's likely three, four, maybe five times higher than, than, than the numbers we're seeing uh, mm-hmm. because people just aren't, aren't getting tested. Um, and the, the access to those tests are just, yeah. just um, not not there, despite right. what the administration is saying. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they have a, a gift for fabricating uh, information and having an adverse relationship with factual with factual information, um, which is uh, you know that's a whole whole thing there. Uh, but you know the question is is what are the actual numbers here? You know, yeah, hard to say uh, where it, it is. It's hard to it's hard to it's hard to say where those numbers are. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way that we can more accurately understand where we stand more so than what we do now? Um, so I did an interview with uh, this guy, he owns this company, I think, I believe it's called Kinsa, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, and they have um, smart thermometers and he distributes them to schools because, you know, blues, influenza-like things are spreading quickly in schools. Um, he's been doing this for years. Um, and he was, I think he's still working on trying to like figure out how he can help track uh, the spread of something like the corona- coronavirus because, um, these thermometers they get the temperature right away um and then it gets sent to like the, you know their servers and they so they know exactly where the person was what their temperature was and they uh they send push notifications to keep um, encouraging the person to keep taking their temperature throughout and like what they can do to get better and what they should avoid and all these things um but you can get a fever for a lot of different reasons right but um yeah but so he was, he's been doing it for like tracking the flu in the past, but uh, he was saying it could be applied to this. Um, but that kind of like granular data, I think we need more of that. Like we need more use of these kind of technologies with machine learning and AI and all this, where we can get this kind of data sets where we can find exactly where things are um, and where they're gonna go next. Do you uh, do you have um, I guess uh, another question that that I have here is is uh, about the implications that this is going to have long term. Uh, I read a piece in Bloomberg the other day 
that suggested that this is going to really drive down our uh, not just our status in the world, but the the, the fact that the oh. cities are going to be uh, they're going to be cheaper. They're going to be, but at the same time, they're going to be. Uh, bringing in less money, uh, things like that. Companies are going to shy away from going to places like, like New York. And, uh, you know, you're going to have a lot more of this um, class of, um, you know, service workers who, who may not be making uh, as much money in, in, in cities rather than these, you know, uh, big Fortune 500 uh, companies uh, that are have you know various levels of of um, uh, pay scales for employees. Uh, do you see that playing out um, in other major cities, or you where do you, where do you think we're going to see that that shift? Well, New York's obviously been the hardest hit by this, and as someone who's written about pandemics a lot, it, that city is like built for a pandemic. <laughs> I mean, like mm -hmm. you, everyone's so on top of each other in New York. I mean, like just to like go to the grocery store, you have to walk through a hall, probably can encounter someone. Then you're in an elevator and you're on a street that has, I mean, when you're not sheltering in place, there's a lot of people there. Uh, maybe you're in the subway. I mean, it's just a very, you know, crammed uh, city. Um, but so I think it's going to be a, of a big effect there. I've heard, you notice some people saying that they left early on to be out of the city for it. And they're, this is anecdotal, but just been seeing people saying they're not sure if they're going to come back, you know. Um, and I think that could happen in other cities. Maybe people will start to value the idea of space and, uh, yeah, just space, just being able to walk out your front door and walk down to the end of your driveway and not encounter anyone or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so really anything that you kind of want to add here? Um, so we were talking about how like, you know, maybe this thing is further along than we realized because of the last lack of testing and people, lack of people getting tested. Um, so that, that, that kind of tells us where we are in terms of uh, when, when it will have its apex and stuff like this, but um, What's unclear is what's going to happen after that. But I think within that time frame of us waiting for it to peak, um, it seems like there are promising treatments coming um, have to do with antibodies of people who already um, had it. And I mean, Trump keeps talking this malaria drug. Uh, and some people say it might help, and others say there's no evidence. So I have no idea what's going on there. Um, but I think we could soon have treatments that will make this less of a problem, which could help us get back to business as usual to some degree, because then even if someone does get it, hopefully the drug is good enough that it's not so serious, you know? Um, and then we eventually get a vaccine and then it's much less of a concern. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping for a lot of good drug development. It seems like some progress is being made. Okay, well, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, yeah. yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into the very first 
episode of the Coffee Break Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. Every week, we're going to be sitting down with the biggest newsmakers, trendsetters, and leaders of industry to discuss the biggest stories making news across the country and around the world. Really excited to put all of these stories in context. If you want to follow my reporting specifically, my Twitter handle is Andy Reports, and my Instagram is also Andy Reports, if that's more your cup of tea. For the Believe Podcast Network, I'm Eddie Hirschfeld in New York. We'll see you next week.